Well, welcome. It's good to be back with you, and I've missed you. It's been fun uh, doing the things we've been able to do and relaxing, but it's been a blessing to know that I'd be back with you today and our time as we return to the Word of God in 1 Timothy. Instruction for the church for teaching, leading, and equipping is our study. It's been our study now for a number of months. It's a study through First and Second Timothy and Titus, Guidelines for Public Worship, particular pursuing godliness today, and it's one of those things where I continue to remind you, I hope that you've been in the Word this week. If you're not, you're starving this morning, and that's not how the Lord has determined for us to live as believers, so be in the Word each day. Make it your, your goal to develop a time of quiet time in the Word where you open it, and you think about it, and read through it, and what does the Word say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? Begin to that's how we grow, and that's how we come to uh, maturity in the faith. So it's good to be back together. I'm grateful for our men who work so hard at preaching and teaching, namely Daniel Gillette, Daniel Wisby, Ben Shaw, Jason Sandroff, Bill Tussie. Those men have been in the pulpit now uh, numerous times, many times in my absence. They've been a blessing to me. I know they have to you. My, I'm very grateful for them and for their ministry. And I'm especially thankful that you're in very good hands in my absence as they bring their spiritual gifts to bear on the church here at Berean for our mutual benefit. We were also able to have a very successful ministry of VBS Vacation Bible School the week of July 9th through the 13th. And I know a number of, on, or of us are on vacation, but if you volunteer during that time, would you please stand just briefly so we can recognize you? You volunteered for some for something that happened during VBS. We're very grateful for you. Give them a hand. We, what a joy that was to watch more than 30 volunteers to uh, make sure that uh, was successful, a successful time together. We have been in our study, and we're going to return to that study today in our verse-by-verse through First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus, instructions for the church for teaching, leading, and equipping. The series, in particular First and Second Timothy, guidelines for public worship, is really based on a very clear statement from Paul to Timothy in First Timothy chapter 3. If you've not been with us, verse 14 says this, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed... I write so that you'll know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So it couldn't be any more clear as we think about what the letter was written for. It was written so that we would know how we're supposed to conduct ourselves in God's household. The Lord is the one who has the right to say that. Christ, of course, the head of everything, the church. So the book itself then is applicable both in the first century all the way through till now. It's how the church is to be conducted. And so we can go back here if we're unsure about what's going on, and we can use this as a marker and say, okay, this is the direction the Lord has said it's supposed to go. These are the things that are supposed to be true. These things are supposed to be included and so forth. And so what we see then is a very accurate guide for us as we think about the church. So that's been our focus. And so as we've worked our way through the letter now, we're in chapter 4, we've just allowed that focus, that understanding, Paul's intent for the letter to kind of guide our thoughts. We don't have to make up points. We don't have to come up with something edgy or, or whatever. We just have to follow through with Paul's thoughts, see what it means, how does that apply to the church today, and just use that as our guide. So I'd like you to turn, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 4. It is our habit, of course, to read from our open Bible, and so whether you're using a digital copy or a paper copy, doesn't matter. Turn to 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. I'm going to be reading from New American Standard, and what it, you just read from whatever you normally read from and memorize from, and we'll be fine. I'll give you some verse cues. We'll stay together. 
So 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4 and verses 1 through 16. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Verse 2, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Verse 3, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Verse 4, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. Verse 5, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. Verse 6, and pointing out these things to the brethren, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of sound doctrine which you have been following. Verse 7, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Verse 8, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Verse 9, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Verse 10, for it is for this we labor and strive. Because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Verse 11, prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. Verse 13, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Verse 14, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed upon you through the prophetic utterance and with the laying hands on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Verse 16. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Stop right there. From the Pulpit Digest, Philip Halley wrote of a little village of La Champagne in, in France, a town whose people, unlike others in France, hid Jews from the Nazis. Halley went there wondering what sort of courageous ethical heroes could risk all to do such extraordinary good. He, inter he interviewed people in the village and was really overwhelmed by the ordinariness of all of it. They weren't necessarily heroes or smart, discerning people. Just appeared to Halley that the one factor that united them was their attendance Sunday after Sunday at their little church where they heard the sermons of Pastor Trochme. Over time, they became, by habit, people who just knew what to do and did it. And when it came time for them to be courageous, the day the Nazis came to town, they quietly did what was right. One old woman who faked a heart attack when the Nazis came to search her house later said, Quote, Pastor always taught us that there comes a time in every life when a person is asked to do something for Jesus. When our time came, we knew what to do, end quote. And this is Paul's intent, of course. This is the reason for his writing. It's the reason for the epistles that we read. Uh, Paul's faithful teaching, his regular letters. Uh, when the time comes, they'll know what to do in each situation that life brings along. But the reverse is also true. And look at verse, uh, chapter, one, ver uh, chapter 4, verse 1, if you would. He says this, But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, 
men who forbid marriage advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. And you've likely seen this, as I have, not too far away from my home, there's a number of hardwoods that are slowly being destroyed by coils of ivy. You can see them all over if you're in the woods. The vines really wind themselves up like snakes around the trunk, and they get up all the way into the top canopy. At this point, it really would be impossible to untwist those runners because they're so firmly embedded into the trees. They're literally strangling the life out of the tree. But there once was a day when the ivy was just a small plant seeking a little support in climbing. And I think all of that's very analogous to Paul's teaching. The bad habits of false teaching, substituting clear doctrines each Sunday with some feel-good sermons or legalism, or in the case here, asceticism, which is saying something spiritual that I can do or not do to achieve holiness, grow really into, if you will, unbreakable bonds that can really choke the life out of individual believers and their ability to discern truth and, of course, the church. And so, last time we were in this passage, we marked some principles that really were takeaways from the passage, things that we can learn, so that we'll have the understanding that we need when we see these things come. And the first one was, the Holy Spirit has warned us clearly numerous times that a major problem will dominate the future of the church. False teachers teaching demon doctrine is going to cause many to fall away from the faith. It's always been a problem, no question. It was a problem in the first century, which is why Paul is addressing it. It's going to be a real problem, he says, for the church in the future. And, and we'll just get worse as we get near the end. And the first part of the warning is that some will fall away from the faith. And now we saw that falling away from the faith is nothing new. And will fall away is the Greek verb where we get our word apostate. And the word apostate, the Bible describes this as departing from or falling away from the faith that they knew. This is not someone who never knew the truth and walks in unholiness and away from the word and in rejection of Christ. This is someone who once affirmed something to be true, but now this deception has come in and now they don't affirm it. And because the heart was never in it, because they never really knew God, they were able to be lured away, it says, by paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. What they don't realize is, is what's happening, of course, uh, but they're beginning to listen to what in reality, Paul says, uh, are the seductive, insidious voices of demons behind false beliefs and false forms of religion and behind the dangerous attractions of the culture. And we recognize, not not just from the passage, but from from all the supporting passages we've examined as we've worked up to this uh, place, that all forms of false doctrine, all forms of false religion, all forms, no matter what the human is saying or modeling, all find their source with demons. All false teaching finds its source with demons. And we saw many, many dozens of passages that help us firm that up in our mind. This is a very regular teaching from the Apostle Paul. We can see all the way back in the Psalms, all over the place, that this is a regular teaching from the Scriptures. And we saw, too, that the entire culture really is the playground of demons. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, John says, We know that we are of God, and that, he says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And all that means is that Satan doesn't need to work, or doesn't have to work, in order to seduce the world. They're already his. And the world's systems and the world's attractions are arranged around things that seduce people. So the lust of the flesh, that's sexual and physical attractions, body image, immorality, uh, uh, the so-called gender dysphoria, 
dysphoria, the lust of the eyes, uh, the covetousness, the greed, desire to attain or have something, dissatisfaction with what you have, a boastful pride of life, the attraction of power and prestige and education in order to enhance a status or a standing. The world is attracted, it's captured by and deceived by these things or derivatives of them, and the world is already his. That's John's point. And they have to be delivered from them by the power of the gospel. But it's a tremendous problem for the world. Uh, but the warning that Paul doesn't want Timothy and the church at Ephesus to ignore is that this can be a serious issue for the church as well. And we saw in Hebrews chapter 6 and other places where you have that peripheral group of people who are kind of hanging on orbit around the church, never very close, but can say the right things and apparently know the right things and all that kind of stuff. But what ends up happening, they never really knew the Lord. They never really convinced it was right. And as soon as the right uh, teaching comes along, the right deception comes along, off they go. And then it says in Hebrews, it's impossible to renew them to repentance again. Why is that? Because there isn't any new information that's going to be presented to them that's going to be different from what they've already heard. So this is very, very common. It's going to be more and more common as the days get longer and closer to the end. Satan and his angels disguise themselves as angels of light. We saw in, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And they become the suppliers of religion, the suppliers of false doctrine and foolish behavior. And then market. They animate it just enough to keep people coming back. False doctrine, false teaching, things that uh, go on in churches today manifestation of miracle gifts and all those kinds of things that we know have ceased. There's just enough animation to it, just enough reality that sounds right to the ear. It keeps people coming back. But in contrast to what is propagated by demons, we're not at the mercy just of that. John chapter 16, verse 13, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all what? Truth. We have a source of objective truth. It's not a question of whether or not true believers are going to be deceived. There's a source of objective truth. The Spirit leads you into all truth, and these spirits lead you into all error. They seduce, they lure, they deceive, and they're powerful, and they're principalities, and they're powers against which the church must wrestle. And they've been around since creation, and so they know precisely what to put in front of each individual. They've been through it so many times over and over again, precisely what will attract and draw someone away. And they find their manifestation in false teachers who can fool unsuspecting and undiscerning churchgoers into deception. And that's exactly what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. He says this happens, in verse 2, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own consciences with a branding iron. So now he's really defining what a false teacher looks like. The vehicle, the by means of, the vehicle, if you will, whereby deception is delivered to the individual. And that was principle number four from our passage. We not only know the source of all false teaching, which is demons, but their mouthpiece is always human. And this is done through human agents. Through the source is supernatural, the vehicle is natural. The deceit occurs on a human level. And so Paul is carried away and carried along to say that these men are hypocrites that tell lies. And that was principle number five as we think about how the Bible is unfolding for us here from our passage. They look sincere, they look religious, they can say the right things, but on the inside they are and do the opposite. So they appear to be religious, they appear to be pastors perhaps or priests or religious leaders of one kind or another. 
They undoubtedly will look sincere. They're going to say the right things. They're going to look like they want to help people have a better life or be closer to God or whatever it is. And they may carry a Bible and they can say all the correct Christian things. But inside, it's the opposite. It's a facade. They mask the demon face with a mask of religiosity. The mask, the demon voice with a voice of understanding, a voice of concern. And you have to listen carefully to what they say and watch the life closely in what they do. You have to be able to discern the departure. And sometimes that's easy to do, especially if you watch the life in the private sector. And sometimes it's maybe more subtle. And then verse 2 says, seared in their, con- their own consciences with a branding iron. So they seem to be able to pull this off in a very genuine and believable manner. Perhaps you've heard some false teachers before. And you just think, how can he say those kinds of things? And they just say it with just a straight face. And they're not even catching in any of their words. It doesn't look like they're trying, they're having a hard time saying it. It just comes across very, very easily. They pull it off in a very genuine, believable manner. And that was principle number six from our passage as we think about the source of all false teaching. And they've spoken demon deception for so long, their conscience no longer responds or feels anything. There's no sensitivity, if you will, to the truth. They teach false things, and they truly believe what they say, and that's because of the conscience. And we looked at this numerous times. You can go back and listen to other sermons to catch up on this. But the conscience is the part of us God has given to us, to everyone who's ever been born, that's there to affirm or condemn an action. It's there to have that conversation. It's, it's the thing you're having a conversation with that you think about the ethic of something that you're thinking about doing. And rightly informed, that conscience is going to tell you correctly what to do. You spend time in the Word each day, you're informing that conscience constantly, which is one of the reasons why I encourage you. Be in the Word each day. Your conscience is going to be informed correctly from the truth to help you make those decisions in the world. But these teachers have a conscience, it says, that's been scarred to the point where they can carry on this lie, their hypocrisy, and seem to have no regrets and no shame. So they've spoken demon ideas then and demon deception so many times their conscience has been seared as with an iron. So there's no reaction then anymore. Their sensitivity to right and wrong, if you will, their sensitivity to truth and integrity, it's been scarred beyond function. So they will say things that aren't true and really truly believe that they are. So they stand in pulpits and they pass off things that are not true and never even have a problem with it. Apostates who either won't take a stand because of the, and I told you this before, the hermeneutic of humility. That's the new kind of thing that's out there now. The hermeneutic of humility. What's that mean? Well, I couldn't possibly pretend to think I'm right and you're wrong. Supposedly, that's very spiritual to think that there's no way I could ever be right and you could be wrong. I couldn't show you from the Word of God where you are incorrect or vice versa. So they're apostates because they think that or they're apostate because they've thrown out sound doctrine and good Bible study habits in order to push an agenda or a reputation. And Paul says, these are just lies of demons. And what are some of those lies of demons? Look at verse 3. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. And last time we saw the simple understanding of this here in Ephesus, they really had two things they were communicating to people. Remember, these are men communicating demon deception. Paul's already classified this as demon deception. And the demons whispered, and the men spoke, and they said, if you want to be spiritual, and you want to know God, and show that you're possessed salvation, then number one, you shouldn't get married, and number two, you have to abstain from certain foods. 
Those are the two things they're pushing in Ephesus. And it's easy to think as we read that, what's the big deal? That doesn't seem to be that bad, right? You know, I mean, being single doesn't seem to be a big deal. I mean, in fact, 1 Corinthians 7, honor singleness if you've been given that gift. And if you don't want to eat, that's fine, right? There's a place for fasting. There's a place for diet. That's not a big deal, right? That's the first reaction. But that's not the point. The point was really principle number seven as we went through this section concerning false teaching and false teachers. False teaching always includes the religion market of human achievement in which you become saved or spiritual either by things you do or by things you don't do. In other words, salvation for them was built on what they denied themselves. But this is typical, if you think about it, of all false teaching and all false religions, which are doctrines of demons. Initially, they don't look like a big deal. So let's get some context so we'll know that they are. And unfortunately, as we look at this through the Word of God, ascetic teaching fell on fertile ground in the apostolic church. But it still falls on fairly fertile ground now because there's always the tendency to drift towards self-denial in order to appear spiritual. But that kind of externalism is typical of all satanic false religion. Paul says it's all doctrines of demons. It, it really doesn't matter what it is. You can go from a tribal people still, as it were, living in the Stone Age. You've animistic worship and believe they mollify whatever God they worship by piercing themselves, uh, pulling out all their hair or self-flagellation or finger amputation or burning incense or fire walking or self-immolation or any number of those things. And you can read about all of those kinds of things. Or you can move to a very sophisticated, uh, away from that, to a very sophisticated Roman Catholic church that will believe and teach true spirituality and holiness is gained by those who abstain from marriage and who abstain from meat on certain days or by knee walking or the celibacy of the priesthood or the celibacy of nuns and convents. Somehow spirituality is gained by those things. So simple, out in the tribe, complex, sophisticated here in the United States and across the world. It's exactly the same kind of doctrine. These are the same. They're doctrines of demons. There's no spiritual standing, beloved. No salvation in any way, shape, or form dependent on what you do or don't do. What you accept or deny yourself in terms of those things. And Christians who trade in their standing in Christ for ascetic pursuits are deceived. And that's Paul's point. Now, there are, of course, people who, uh, according to both Jesus and Paul, are called to remain single who also know that fasting is sometimes appropriate. This is understood. We're not talking about that. But the scriptures are clear that celibacy and vegetarianism are not God's general will for people. Those who forbid marriage, certain foods, thinking this makes them pleasing to God and holy, are guilty of a grievous error. Still, first century, now. So this was a mess. It's still a mess. You don't have to look very far on bookstore shelves to still see it. And, and that's Paul's point. And if you have the time, uh, go back and look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. Vicki, mark that right there in your Bible. It's a cross-reference. Uh, Colossians 2, verse 16 through 23, which we looked at last time. We won't go through this again. But where Paul deals with the same mess in Colossae, which just affirms that doing or not doing things doesn't make you holy. All those things are just, he calls them there, a shadow. And Jesus is the reality. Don't let anyone tie you up and, and the don't touch, don't taste, all that ascetic approach to life. That's all worthless. But it was in all the churches. It's still in the churches today because you're complete in Jesus. 
And now again, as we said before, that doesn't release you to do what Jesus has said not to do. Okay? So don't confuse that with somehow freedom misinformed, which is I can do whatever I want because I'm free in Christ. You're not free to do whatever Jesus has said not to do. It doesn't release you not to do things Jesus has said to do. That's not legalism or asceticism. That's strictly being obedient. Because obedience is the activity of the redeemed, not the way to redemption. And we looked at that. Now, we looked at a number of supports to our understanding of this passage from historical context. And we're not going to repeat that today, and you can catch up with that online. But regardless of the background of the reason, Paul still calls all of this a deception of demons. And their, spiritual, and their teaching is always the same. It's going to be that man achieves spirituality by his own efforts. Now look at verse 3. Here's a verse that's, that just kind of helps us sum this up. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth, which God has created... And it, by the, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the Word of God in prayer. And what we saw here was this. The answer to all this foolishness is creation's goodness. That's Paul's point. God has created to be gratefully shared. Don't deny those things. God made them. Creation's goodness is the issue. That's the answer. The answer rests then on our understanding and affirmation of the intrinsic goodness of everything created by God. And Paul's point is, then the antidote to all of this foolishness, all of this demon teaching is that we must embrace God's own verdict as stated at the end of Genesis 1, God saw all that he had made and it was all, what does he say? Very good. It's important to remember that God created marriage. God made marriage. God took Adam, he gave him a wife, and they were married, right? In fact, Peter calls marriage the grace of life. It's also important to remember that God made all foods. In fact, when God made everything, he stood back in Genesis and looked at it and said what? It's good. All of it. So the question Paul's asking the church through Timothy is, how can you deny what Deny men what God has created to be received with thanksgiving by them who believe and know the truth. How can you do this? This is absurd. In reference to food, Jesus himself declared that all foods are clean in Mark chapter 7, verse 19 and 20. In fact, that was really pounded into Peter's stubborn awareness through a vision of a sheet dropping down to earth with all of earth's food lowered before him three times and repeated three times, don't call anything impure God has made clean. So Paul really specifies this point of, of this goodness. He says, which God has created to be gratefully shared by all those who believe and know the truth. So is this just all for believers? No, but it's primarily for believers. God designed marriage for all men. God designed food for all men. And God made marriage. And the same reason he made everything else for his own glory. All the food belongs to God too, right? I mean, Psalm chapter 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. That would include food, you know? God could have just made a nasty gray paste that everybody would have had to eat and you would have never known any different forever. But instead, there's this wonderful, almost infinite number of combinations and tastes that vary all across the world and it's amazing. And why do we have all that? That's all God's doing. We have it so that he, what, would be glorified. 
And that's why we can say that it's primarily for believers. Because although it's true that the unredeemed world eats the food and the unredeemed world enjoys marriage, but the world never even considers the one who gave it. In fact, Romans chapter 1 says that's part of the condemnation of the world. They neither glorify God or give thanks to Him. Part of the, part of the identity of the unredeemed is they don't glorify God or give thanks to Him in the fact that He's revealed Himself in a certain way to the world, to every man. Every man, Romans 1 says, is without excuse. They all know God exists regardless of what they say. And then he says, because he's revealed himself in a certain way to be glorified and thanked, and people indicate that they haven't received any of that in the correct understanding by not giving him either. And it's the same here. In the truest sense, marriage and food and every good thing God made, according to Paul, he made primarily for those who believe and know the truth. Why? Because they were all made for his glory. And if they were all made for his glory, then the only people who fulfill that purpose of giving him glory are the ones that really know why all of it was made and given to begin with. Do you see? So in the end, as we work it all out, the ones that are, it's really made for are the ones that honor him. Now think about creation when he made all of it. Did God expect that everyone would acknowledge him? Of course he did. Fast forward to the flood. Do you think at the end of the flood, anybody said, I wonder if God did that? Do you think they did? How long did you think it took for them to start saying, well, I don't think there was a flood? It would have had to have been pretty long, right? Because there was a lot of marks on the earth. And people who were there in the ark were still alive. Shem was alive when Joseph was alive. So if you were unsure whether God actually did it or not, you could always talk to great, 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 great grandpa Shem. Right? And it's the same during creation. How long did it take for people to forget that God made all this stuff for his own glory and gave it for our good? It would take a long time, but yet we sit here with our chronological snobbery and say, well, it really wasn't made for that. That's not what he really meant, and they didn't understand. But the issue really is, people were, would, would have to know that God gave it for a purpose, for his own glory, and for the goodness and encouragement of man, right? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And he gave it to men and said, use it and consume it and do those kinds of things. It's made for you. The earth was made for people. Everything that's made was made for people. Did you know that? A disposable planet. We know that right from the beginning, right? We can read the end. We realize he's going to trash it all, remake it. A disposable planet made for the good of men. Don't let anybody fool you about any of that, okay? Be discerning about that. Don't buy into all that nonsense. You're not going to save the planet regardless of what you do. God's going to trash it. And if you're mad about what's going on now, wait till he gets busy with it. It's really going to look bad then. So that's the essence of verse 4. God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. Now the implications of that are pretty important. Because that gratitude goes beyond eating to all of life. We're the ones who thank God for our marriage, for sure. We're the ones who thank God for the food. I reminded you last time we were together, when you walk into a grocery store, like a Costco or a Sam's, and you look at the volume of the food available to us, all sitting there waiting, that's God's bounty. With joy, He gives it so we can enjoy it. But not only that, 
the redeemed are the ones who show gratitude for everything, right? A grateful heart is a heart that's really hard to offend. Did you know that? We're grateful for everything God has given us, and that becomes rejoice always, as Will read earlier, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So believers are supposed to respond in thankfulness. That's, if you want to tune up your marriage, you want to tune up your relationship with your kids, you want to turn up your relationship at work, start being more grateful. First of all, you'll be walking with the Lord and doing it. And number two, it really reflects well on Him. That everything that you have has come from Him. And even difficult times. Rejoice in various trials. Knowing the trial of your faith works patience, and let patience have its perfect work, that you may be complete, lacking nothing. Even difficult times, you respond in thankfulness. It's part of the trademark of being a believer, not just for our marriage, not just for the food. The redeems are the ones that show our gratitude. And so, in the purest and truest and highest sense, everything God ever made, He made for those who believe and know the truth. And that's a pretty wonderful statement, isn't it? The fact that before you became a believer, you didn't understand this. But now you can. The Holy Spirit's given you the ability to understand these things we just talked about. And the world, yes, they, they get in it because the rain falls on the just and the what? On the unjust. Matthew 5.45 So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. The unredeemed benefit from marriage. They benefit from food for the same reasons that redeemed people benefit from them. And even though they don't give glory to Him for it now, He will still get glory in the end when every knee bows and every tongue confesses. Because God will use good things to judge the wicked. He gave all of it. It was part of the indication that He exists. When people willfully deny the truth, someday they'll have to acknowledge it was truth. And so, Paul says believers give that thankfulness and gratefulness back to him now. And so part of the richness of enjoying all these things is rejoicing in the good things God has made and rejoicing in him as the giver of it all. Right? Because in our land of abundance, we can rejoice in the abundance. But beloved, if you've ever traveled abroad in a third world country where there isn't much, you'll still find believers rejoicing in everything God has given and believe that they've been given more than they deserve, just like you and I should believe. So it doesn't, it's not related to whether or not we have a whole lot or just a little. Paul says, I've learned to abound and I've learned to abase and in whatever situation it is, to give the Lord glory for it. So, Paul phrases this and really makes it look so ridiculous for men to come along and deny marriage and deny certain foods and think it makes them holy, abstaining from them. What they're really doing, Paul says, is denying God the right to be glorified for the beauty of what he gave to us. Your holiness is found in Christ. So how can we sum this up? Marry and eat everything he's provided and praise him. And that's the way we should approach all of life. Certainly there are times for self-denial and discipline. If God says not to do it, then we don't do it. 
because the activity of the redeemed is obedience. Verse 4 says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. And it's even more broad in case you were thinking about abstaining from something else, right? Nothing is to be rejected that God has made, unless, of course, he's given you his direct commandment from the Word of God to not do it. But nothing is rejected if it's received with gratitude. And it's even more broad. And, and so we are to be grateful for creation's goodness in heaven and earth. And we're grateful for the stars and the flowers and the vegetables and the animals and seas and rivers and fish and forests and gender and marriage and sex and family and friends and food, etc., etc., etc. In case you've forgotten some of that, hang out with a little guy or a little girl for a little while. They'll make you more grateful for it. They notice all that. I told you before, when my sons were little, they were always looking up. Dad, look. You forget to do that when you're adult, don't you? You forget to look at the glory of the heavens. So we bought a telescope so we could focus it up there and look at it in the evenings. And it was enriching to me to be reminded of God's greatness displayed in the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God. And so we are reminded of that creation when we look up. And the flowers on the path, your little ones see them first, don't they? And look at the spider, Dad, and, and look at that bug. All the magnificent creation of God for which we thank the Lord. The Lord gives us children sometimes to remind us, don't get too busy to look at those kinds of things. And what's cool is, for everything created by God, here's this word, good. And that's our word, kalos, again. There's a lot of words in Greek for good. Kalos is used a number of times in Timothy, and I love it. So the idea, remember, it includes a beauty. The goodness of it is certainly, and it's well-designed and it's pleasing. What God's made is well-designed and pleasing. Not only does it far surpass its intended purpose, but the word kalos has this inherent meaning of beauty connected to it. So enjoy the food God created, enjoy the marriage God gives. They far exceed their purpose and their design and are pleasing. And to see people giving thanks for those things and enjoying them in the fullest is really beautiful, isn't it? That's beauty from the Lord's perspective, enjoying those things and giving thanks for them. There's a beauty inherent in that, not just that it's good and designed perfectly as it should be, but there's a beauty in giving Him thanks for it. And then nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. Take it and give God thanks. And then verse 5, for it is sanctified. And here you get right down to it. Not only should we give him thanks, not only did he create it, not only is he worthy of the glory connected to it, and he did it for his own glory, for it's sanctified. And, and that for it is just refers to anything that God has made that ascetics are, are thinking about rejecting or abstaining from. He just derails the whole movement. All this is teaching, he said, for, for, for this is, all these things are sanctified. These things they are telling you to abstain from, God has created and has been sanctified. That's the word set apart. It's been made clean. It's been cleansed. It's the opposite of the word common. It's not common. It's been set apart and cleansed. By means, how? By the word of God. And that first part always refers to the message of salvation. So through the message of salvation, we've come to know the Lord. We've come to know the truth in Christ. And we just said that a minute ago. You didn't know any of this until you came to faith and the Holy Spirit's residing in you and giving you this wisdom. See, so through the message of salvation, we come to know the Lord. We've come to know the truth of Christ. And specifically here, we've come to know that Christ has abolished all food laws and all dietary laws. He's been clean on the cross. The gospel has ended all those dietary restrictions. 
And remember, if you understand the context of any of that, you know they were given those dietary restrictions only for a brief time in Israel's history to develop their ability to discern and obey and be separate from those who were in the land before them. And to help them understand the truth of separation from nations. And that came before and they were never evil in and of themselves. But once Christ came, they were set aside because they had a limited national purpose. Because why? Everything God has made is what? Good. Everything God has made is good. That's not negated by God giving instruction to his people for a temporary time. So it's sanctified, number one, by the means of the word of God. And secondly, it's sanctified by prayer. And I think if we understand that, uh, if, if in prayer we offer God thanks, then we can receive any and all of his good gifts. Because what giving thanks does is it sets our food and our activities and our marriage and all the blessings of our life in a true perspective as God's good creation and gift to us. So the answer to asceticism is, is not uh, you know, mere reception of it, but reception with thankful prayer to God as the giver of all good gifts. A reminder that he gives good gifts and he's the giver and we praise him for that. Not because it's all good all the time, not because we have a lot or a little, but because he's the giver of everything and he's good. So mandatory celibacy, abstinence from certain foods is demon teaching because if it denies God's creation and his ability to know what good gifts to give for which we are to give thanks and praise. It denies him the acknowledgement that he knows best for us, not ourselves. And it ignores Christ's sanctification of all of it because it denies God's word that's revealed in the gospel of Christ, which sets aside any and all restrictions. And so Paul corrects the course of the church, giving them a warning, exposing the source of all false teaching. He points out the choking effect of the vines and their insidious encroach on the individual that's undiscerning and on the church. These are things that shouldn't be there, things that need to be cut away. In verse 6, look there. And pointing out these things to the brethren, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And so as we begin to wrap up for today, Paul is moving from illustrating the source of all false doctrine, that's what we just got through doing, as we got right up to verse 5, to godly traits that need to be active in a faithful minister. And it's connected because the first one is pointing something out faithfully from the pulpit and from those who lead ministries, because this is a compound Greek verb, hupotithemi, present tense, so the action's in progress, middle voice, subject is acting on itself or being affected by its own action. That's the second one is what's going on here, being affected by its own action, and the participle is a verbal adjective. This has to be the continuous duty of a faithful minister. It's pointing out error. Part of the job that has to be done is not just making everybody feel good and making sure they say, what a great time I had all this whole time. Part of the time, a minister will be stepping on toes. Part of the time, he's going to be stepping on well-entrenched doctrine that people have believed in deception, and now they need to be free of it. Pointing out the choking vine that's around everything. And Paul says, faithful ministers, faithful people who are ministering and furthering the kingdom, part of what they're going to be doing is pointing out 
And Paul tells Timothy he's to be in constant duty as a minister to the flock of pointing out biblical principles. And that, beloved, is what qualifies him. And he gets the title of a good servant. You see, you don't automatically get the title of a good servant. And it shouldn't surprise us in First and Second Timothy and Titus that we get some understanding of what it looks like faithful pulpit and faithful kingdom ministry. Because Paul says, I'm writing this so you'll know how to conduct yourself in the household of faith, which is the pillar and support of the truth, the church. So if the church doesn't get it right, nobody's going to get it right. Okay, so this is where it has to be right. A good servant, again, that word good is our word kalos again. Not only will you be doing what you should do and doing the job right by pointing out these kinds of things, it's going to be beautiful because that's how God designed the church to be led. Listen, a packed house with a bunch of lights and fancy stuff going on and no preaching of the Word of God, just whatever you want to say, that may look good and feel good temporarily. But beloved, listen, Jesus has already said what He expects to happen from the pulpit. And the source is not an individual. It's not my thought about, well, let's, t- let's preach on this topic today. Let's say these kinds of things. Let's have this video, whatever. The source of good servanthood is the amount of time you spend in the Word of God making sure people understand what it says, what it means by what it says, and how that applies to you. And the more faithfully you do it, the more Jesus is pleased about it. And we see that over and over again. That's not even a, a peripheral doctrine. That's everywhere in the New Testament. God's designed the church to be led, and you get, the, you get the qualification good servant. And that word servant is an interesting word. It's the one we've seen many times. Diakonos, a table waiter. Of course, he's referring here in its context to Timothy. So obviously, as a servant of the church, as a, as a minister, he's, a ser- he's serving the church. We understand that, I think. And, and he's referring to him, uh, but because he uses this word, diakonos, we know that a broader application is to anyone serving the church anywhere. He didn't use elder, overseer. He just said servant. And so anyone working to build the kingdom from a leadership perspective is to have this as a priority, pointing out these kinds of things to the brethren. You're a good servant of Christ Jesus. And that is principle number one as Paul focuses on true godliness and not on asceticism, which is no godliness at all. He tells Timothy, don't keep all this to yourself. I'm writing this to you so you can pass this on. And so principle number one, a faithful minister will confront false teaching and constantly point out biblical principles. And of course, the ones Paul has given Timothy are the example here. But we're not limited just to those things. The Word of God is the source. And we have the opportunity, of course, now with a completed New Testament to go and pull from all of those things to help the church to grow and to be aware of the things that are encroaching on their understanding in places where they may be deceived. And that qualifies you to be considered a good servant, a faithful minister, market of Jesus Christ. This is the kind of minister that Jesus thinks is great. Because, beloved, there are a lot of things going on in the name of Jesus, but if it doesn't line up here, we can be sure of one thing. Jesus doesn't think it's great. Okay? It's very, very simple to come to that understanding. We've seen it over and over again in the New Testament. It gets the stamp of approval from Christ, who is the head over everything the church, when it aligns what he said has to be done in the church and the way it's supposed to be done and by the people he's put in place with the qualifications that they are to have. 
So there's this whole line of things. It just has to be an unbroken chain that comes right on down to what's being said from the pulpit on a regular basis or from the small group or in the Sunday school or in the VBS or wherever it is that you're doing your ministry from the, from the worship team or whatever. And so I think this is cool in the way he uses these words. Paul kind of flips the table on the false teachers, and Paul does this a lot. He'll use their words against them. Because remember, they're thinking about denying themselves food and denying themselves certain things. And he says, listen, you're thinking about a spiritual diet, and it's misdirected. Let me give you what the diet needs to be that you need to be following. A constant diet of what's good for you is true godliness and spirituality. And that's going to be a diet that feasts on and is informed from the Word of God. So that's what Paul means when he says, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of sound doctrine which you've been following. An idea of being constantly nourished in trepho, present passive participle, in is a fixed spot and trepho is feeding or benefiting. So then the participle is in continuous. And so our, our second principle there, and we're going to end with this, true godliness in a faithful teacher is found in a diet constantly nourished on the word of God. Not on what you want to say, not on these cool illustrations you want to use, but the amount of time you spend in the pulpit exegeting the Word of God clearly so people can come away not thinking, I wonder how he got that out of there. Because, you know, if, you, if they're wondering how you got that out of the passage, it's because you put it in there to begin with, okay? They should be able to see the Word of God and come away with the same conclusion that you just had. Why? Because you have the same helper, and the same text. So we come away understanding that, not thinking what a great guy, uh, whoever the teacher was, is. That was really cool. But thinking, God, you are so good to do this for us. That is so cool that this is how I'm supposed to think. And you walk out thinking how great the Word of God is, how informative and instructional for the things of life. Complete lacking nothing. So if you want to be, you want to have a congregation that's healthy, Focus on being the, in the Word yourself. So if you're teaching, be in the Word every day yourself. Because then, you'll have something to say. If you're leading worship, if you're leading Sunday school, if you're doing VBS, be in the Word yourself every day. So then, you can tell somebody something that has some impact. That's really going to change them for eternity. And this is one of the major problems in the modern church. Lots of preachers want to be hip. They want to be cool. They want to be a celebrity. They want people to think well of them. They want to offer quick fixes and life hacks and banal, trivial self-help. And that might sound good and it might look good. It might come in a really great package, but it's worthless for anything that matters for eternity. They aren't nourishing anybody because they aren't being nourished from the Word of God. But it can look good and sound good and it can feel good and be spiritually worthless. And I think that's Paul's point. He's dealing with a church in Ephesus that already has this tendency. He's trying to flip it back around. He had to put a couple of the teachers out of the church, telling Timothy, okay, these are the things you need to make sure you take care of. You have to make sure you communicate these things specifically. And so important points, I think, as we move into godliness of those who lead, the first thing is got to make sure all the time you're addressing these kinds of issues with the congregation so they'll know how to live. They'll be able to know as that village in France did during the 1940s. When it came time to do the things they had to do, they already knew what to do.
That's very important. So let's pray, be dismissed in, in prayer. Father, we thank you today for just a great time together with, with the church. Thank you for the fellowship of the saints. Thank you for the joy it is to have like minds, to be in the Word and love it, to love the, the fact that your Holy Spirit is working to help us understand it, that a hundred places today uh, the Holy Spirit instructed an individual on something. For that, we're very grateful. We're grateful for the tutoring we get from him, the understanding from the word that is part of his ministry, the conviction of sin, and, and the fixing of the, of the faulty parts. And we thank you that we can trust you to do that. That's what you said you would do, uh, what goes on. Thank you for that. Thank you for the ministry that goes on downstairs with our little ones. Thank you for the faithfulness that's there, those in the nursery and, and in the kinder care and all of that. Father, we thank you for their faithfulness, coming early, staying late, being prepared. Thank you for the worship team that came and, and practiced during the week and came up here early and prayed and, and desired very much to serve you and be invisible so that your, your church and they could worship together because you're worthy of worship. And Lord, we thank you that for that. We're, pretty, we're particularly grateful for uh, the main focus and purposes of the church to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourself. And secondly, to go and give the gospel to all people. And Father, I pray that we'll be about those things. You'll give us opportunity this week, no doubt. I pray that you'll open our own mouth and open the heart of the individual and open your word for their understanding that they might come to saving faith. Thank you that someone did that for us. Thank you that they came out of their comfort zone and made sure that we knew and told us and your Holy Spirit took over from there and convicted us and brought us to repentance. It's our desire to continue that purpose. It's the reason why you've left us here. All of the things subsidiary to that. And so, Father, we thank you for that. We pray also for those who are in leadership over us everywhere. It is the reason why it's not your will that any parish would all come to the knowledge of repentance. It's the reason why you've left us. It's the reason why you've given the word. It's part of this first letter in Timothy. You made it clear we're to pray for all men and all in leadership and all in authority. Why? So we can impact the course of the way the world goes by prayer for those who lead. So we pray. There's much to pray for. As much wickedness that's going on, many wicked laws and hurtful laws that uh, bring destruction on people. I pray to bring uh, understanding to those who lead us, those who are, are believers in that circle. Lord, I pray that they'll be bold. And perhaps they'll hear the message of the cross somewhere over the air or on TV. They'll come to faith. The church might live in such a way in that area to be able to do what it's supposed to do unhindered. We pray for our foreign missionaries who many function in uh, uh, abusive types of governments. I pray that you'll give peace there, that you'll give freedom, that you'll have those who are officials and those who are kings and authority come to faith, that the gospel can go out in power. We're looking for the return of your son any time. And so, Father, we are very, very concerned that the gospel goes out and we continue to do what we're supposed to do and be found faithful there. For all these things, Lord, we're grateful. We're th grateful for our family. We're grateful for our marriages. We're grateful for things you provide on our table, whether a lot or a little, even for difficult times. We're grateful and thankful for these things because you're a good God and you give the right things both for our, your glory and for our good, both for now and in eternity, whatever it is. 
And so, Lord, we want to be thankful, grateful people, as we've been reminded today. Help us to walk out with those thoughts. And we give you praise today and honor and glory and thanks. You've held dominion over us, and we submit to you and your will and everything. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said.